You are listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we feature Kim Stacy in the everyday life of the British soldier. Kim is the Honorary Colonel-in-Chief of the 84th Regiment of Foot, Royal Highlanders Immigrants. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for having me, Eric. I do appreciate it. Kim, we have uh, spent a great deal of time over the last few podcasts talking about Camden and how it's the uh, epicenter of uh, the southern campaigns of the revolution. We've talked to uh, several historians in the area talking about the Pine Tree Preserve. We've talked about the historic Camden and proper, uh, how that was laid out. We've talked about the different battles that went on around here. We've talked about artillery. We've talked about uh, cavalry. Uh, What we haven't talked about, and which is a significant part of the Battle of Camden, is uh, the British soldier and how they, uh, they conducted their everyday life. So that is your forte. Let's, uh, we're, we're excited about hearing about it. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be able to share this with you. The American scholars before the uh, centennial only looked at history from the point of view of our founding fathers. And every new nation needs myths. And it doesn't take away or detract from the, the beautiful, God-given beginning of our republic. But looking at what it was like from the other side, which is normally universally ignored by American authors to this very day, is what was the British Army doing, um, how they fought, what they ate, where they went to the bathroom. I love having been a a mud soldier myself, a mud marine. I want to know how these guys live, the average soldier. And what I'll be talking about today is uh, some very general things, and then I'll try to be more specific about the Camden area. Well, thank you very much. We're, we're excited about hearing about that. You have a, it's an honorary degree or an honorary colonel in the chief, colonel-in-chief of the 84th Regiment of Foot, but uh, you were a Marine Corps uh, soldier, right? We're not just talking to, to uh, someone with a British slant. You are actually a soldier, an American soldier, uh, and you have a uh, master's degree in education, and, uh, and you spent a great deal of time in the, in the uh, armed forces, uh, and you bring that to the table as we, as we talk about the British soldier. Thank you for that. Uh, you're very welcome, and we all appreciate when we're recognized. Um, just quickly, in the mid-'70s, I was what we call a mud marine. I was a, a rifleman, mortars, machine guns, technically a, what they call a weapons specialist now. And from there, I went into the Army and did a lot of things from uh, intelligence work, communications, uh, training other nationals from overseas, and all the time while going to uh, my bachelor's degree, and then uh, through my master's. Um, The great thing was they paid for it, and I was a volunteer, so I have a right to complain, but I still have to get on the bus. And after 9-11, I spent nine years on active duty, and uh, mostly stateside. I got involved with the 84th when I had finished, it would be uh, 1982, I saw at uh, a historic village, Greenfield Village, Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, where I was living, and here were these life-sized men in kilts from redcoats, and having studied the Highland soldier since I can remember, and painting hundreds and hundreds of the little toy miniature soldiers, I thought, this is life-size, I can do this. So I go up and said, uh, where do I join? And I join, and next year everybody quit. 
<laughs> so I'm not sure if it was me, but it, they had been doing it for about 20 years, got older, and my unit did too. You know, it's the ups and downs of volunteerism. And from that, I ended up getting hooked up with Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution guys, Charles Baxley, David Ruhr, all here in Camden, others. And uh, I was in the middle of the desert, but I had internet. I mean, middle of nowhere in the desert. The only reason you knew where it was is because you had to know where it was. And I found their magazine, it's still online, um, but not terribly active lately. And 15 years later, I've moved to Camden, uh, mainly because I have friends here. And it's right in the middle of South Carolina history, which now I'm cramming very hard to get caught up. Because I'm a Yankee, you know, lived right on the border of Canada and also worked with the Canadian Army quite a bit, some of their Highland units. And I used to lecture extensively in Ontario to their uh, military units. And about half of them were Highland units. Well, tell me about the soldiers as they came into South Carolina. We're talking 1779, 1780. Tell me me what you know about those. Well, it actually goes back to the first attack on Charleston in 76. Um, The Battle of Sullivan's Island and also where the British fleet was uh, defeated, not so much by the cannon shot, although they did have some good gunners, but most of them were very inexperienced. They were naval personnel. And wind and tide uh, really caused the fleet to be stuck on sandbars and then shot apart. On the land side, what's called the breach, was universally known to be 18 inches deep. And this is where I I find history fascinating. You read uh, the American textbooks and it was supposed to be a simultaneous attack on Fort Moultrie. And uh, so the flags were given, and the British, who had been skirmishing quite effectively against uh, Hunter, Hunter Thompson, I'm sorry, um, Danger Thompson, and others protecting that corner of the island from the British coming across the breach, just literally walking across. Well, they found out it wasn't 18 inches deep at low tide. There was big potholes and other things that made it very, what they called impractical, uh, to get large numbers of soldiers across. And um, American studies say, well, they got in these boats, actually there were only 15 pontoon boats that were prefabricated, I love that, and were rowing towards the shore. And the American riflemen were just mowing them down. There was blood in the scuppers, and they killed hundreds with their Kentucky long rifles. Never happened. So historians have regurgitated that story over and over, and recently I had a nice, somewhat heated discussion with a gentleman who insisted it was all true. And uh, then I sent him the historic documents, and I'm not quite sure if he'll ever talk to me again, but um, the fact is that never happened. So what documents did you send to him? I specialize in uh, the British records, and most of the guys here in Camden, such a, a community of gifted historians in this town, and in South Carolina. So basically I found the after action reports. There was one surgeon there who uh, actually took notes during the battle. And then there was uh, Major Weiss who was an American. And he was an observer and he's talking about the same battle. And all of them agree that that activity, shooting them down in the boats as they rowed, never is mentioned. So for me, that doesn't take away from the, the history mythology of our republic because we really don't have to make it up. Um, it's more impressive, yeah, more impressive that in fact 
a totally untrained group of people who Rutledge did not even want to go to fighting. Rutledge wanted to surrender Charleston because he had very high financial in, um, investments in Charleston. And many other of the city fathers wanted the British come in. Why? Because they were British. And if everyone recalls, in the early days, all of the, uh, the patriots were fighting for their rights as Englishmen. And they had uh, merchant connections with the mother country. And so they were reluctant to risk their property. And a lot of times, especially up north in Boston for the uh, Bunkers Hill, most of the officers were drinking buddies. They socialized. The famous Bunker Hill painting by Trumbull shows uh, Major John Small, who went on to form a uh, battalion of the 84th, holding back the musket bayonet from uh, a grenadier who's going to stab General Warren, who was his drinking buddy, they were close friends, took a bullet to the head. And he wasn't quite dead yet. And then you've got uh, Major Picarin from the Marines being mortally wounded. And when you look at all the people in that painting, which was painted after the war, but by uh, Trumbull, who was there, and then it was critiqued by Small after the war. So that's pretty accurate, you know, for a painting. They were fighting for the rights as Englishmen. And the British really were reluctant to fight. Lexington and Concord set it off. And Benjamin Franklin, the immortal words, said, after this, first it was like, you did what? Huh? What? You mean shooting at the, the British? No. You know, we have uh, friends in Parliament that are behind the scenes working with us. And we got rid of the odious taxes before that. We've been very successful peacefully resisting the crown. King George was, was the evil Satan, like the United States is today from the Muslim world. And he said, gentlemen, we must surely hang together, or we will most certainly hang separately. And as a historian, I've always loved that phrase. I probably should have it tattooed on my body someplace. So now you've got all these British soldiers who were in garrison, mostly uh, over age, uh, until the new regiments came in with younger men. But they'd been in America sometimes as long as seven to ten years. They'd gotten fat. They'd gotten lazy. Um, they still trained and paraded. And then you get, uh, for example, the... Uh, 64th Regiment was here in South Carolina, and they were all in their 40s, late 40s, and 50s. And they were known as the Gray Hair Regiment because they didn't have to dye their hair, you know, with the white wigs and powder it out. They were actually that old, but those men were hard, hard, hard. You know, it just, just amazing. So to get to the private soldier, no soldier wants to go to war. Training for it can be a lot of fun. But it's also monotonous. Um, all depends on your officers and what you're going to train in. And mostly it's 98% boredom and 2%, oh, darn. <laughs> it's going to get exciting. So they also had to be fed and clothed and have medical care. And this, some of this corresponds to the American Army, especially the Continentals were in a similar situation. To feed them, you have to take food that was usually adulterated, um, spoiled when it got here from England or Scotland or Ireland, ship it all the way to wherever you want it to go in North America. You land it at a port and it goes on wagons or up rivers to transport it. 
And usually by the time you got it, it was bad when they shipped it from England. This passage could take anywhere from six weeks to three or four months, depending on the time of year and storms, all those fun nautical things. And when you opened up the barrel here, and they used to call it, try not to be too colorful here, refer to it as donkey meat. And it was supposed to be beef or pork, and it was mostly bone and grizzle. Like The cow was on its last legs when they slaughtered it and then salted it and put it in the barrel. Then they were given uh, biscuits, hardtack, what you would call today uh, Civil War aficionados. will be quite aware of it. It's about a three inch by three inch, incredibly hard baked, um, unleavened flour dough. And it will keep, well, 100 years. You know, if it doesn't get moist and, and mildewy, but even if it's mildewy, you could still eat it. And you'd have to crunch it up. You could not bite it. It would take one of your teeth out if you tried to chew through it. So usually they powdered it and put it in their stew. So the, the soldier, when he signed up, he was promised uh, eight pence a day, which he only saw half of because of deductions. Pretty much like when I went in the Marine Corps, they gave me all this stuff that I didn't want or need, and they took it out of my pay. And they wouldn't even let me take the galvanized bucket with me when I left. So... <laughs> Some things never changed since the Romans started marching. It, it hasn't changed. So they were offered or told they would have what was called the sevens. Seven pounds of bread or substitute, seven pounds of beef um, or pork. And if it was pork, it was a lower amount than the seven pounds. If it was fresh beef, they lowered the amount of the, of the seven. But universally, it was the sevens. And then approximately... Uh, another seven pounds of peas, oatmeal, rice. They hated rice. And that was slave food. Absolutely hated it. And uh, whatever they could uh, forage, like here in South Carolina, sweet potatoes. And at the Battle of Utah Springs, uh, a large number were captured, including the 84th, but they were out foraging at dawn before the heat comes in and digging up the sweet potatoes. So soldiers will find inventive ways of supplementing their diet. One of the main reasons England lost the war was they could not keep up with the logistics demand covering Canada from Nova Scotia all the way to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And from there, from Nova Scotia, all the way down to Florida, over towards Pensacola, all up into the back country, and literally the soldiers were spaced out because economy of force is one of the tenets of good military training and operations in the field. So you have all these way stations. So the wagons have some place to spend the night without being raided by, in here, Morgan's mounted riflemen. And they were very good at bushwhacking and then taking what food they could carry and, and destroying the rest if they could. So you would go from one way station up the road or up one of the, uh, the rivers or creeks to basically a small fortified area where you'd spend the night, rest your oxen. Wagons or carts usually weren't carried by horses. There weren't enough horses to go around, so it was mostly oxen. And they do about four miles uh, an hour. So logistically, the mathematics is very well worked out. Any young officer could do it. And as you do that, you have to leave more and more men behind. So by the time you get, say, here to Camden, uh, Camden was a major hospital center. 
and logistics center. And I think there was, and don't hold me to this, probably less than two dozen buildings. It was stockaded, redoubted. It would have been hard for an inexperienced American force to attack it. Even with the small cannons that they had, it would just bounce off the turf of a redoubt. It knocked down the fences, but then you're still in a crossfire. And that happened in Savannah. The Americans tried it and were basically massacred. They lost more men in the Battle of Savannah fighting against a fortified position than the British lost at Bunker Hill. So that was the Americans' Bunker Hill. And uh, so when the Americans decide to come over for the Battle of Camden, there was approximately 2,000 British soldiers, give or take. Uh, a good chunk of them were invalids. They were sick, uh, maybe minor wounds, uh, dysentery for sure, uh, malaria, and um, other diseases that they would have had. So they dragged them out of the hospitals um, if they were capable of functioning and then used them to fill out that 2,000. And as usual, uh, the British soldier was outnumbered two to one. That, that was not uncommon, sometimes three to one. And almost always were victorious. And I, I want to stress almost always. So that soldier, when he trained, um, if he came over in the second draft from Ireland, they were trained as the soldiers had learned in the French and Indian War to fight in small groups. There was a two-man team, and one was loading, and the other one was aiming. And the guy that's loading is looking around for targets. And these guys were marksmen. The weapon, the 75 caliber smoothbore brown bess musket, has a, uh, an effective range of 40 to 50 yards, depending on conditions. So the regular soldier, when he aims, and there's another big myth that they never aimed, um, they did. And you could pretty well hit a target somewhere on the body at 40 to 50 yards. Now a good marksman with a rusted weapon, not fired from the shoulder like a shotgun shooting skeet, he can consistently hit a man-sized target at 100 yards. That's almost as effective, and I'm going to hear backlash from this, the, the myth of the rifle versus the musket. Neither had rear sights on it. Both had front sights. Now the rifle, because the ball is spinning and it's lighter, people say it's, it's more accurate. It's not. Gravity pulls the objects down at the exact same rate. So what the rifleman did, if he was good, he used Kentucky windage. A phrase is still in our, our lexicon. So he knew the bullet would carry further than the 75 caliber, which is three quarters of an inch ball um, over 100 yards to 150 yards. But he's aiming way over your head. And from experience, he can calculate in his mind the drop of the ball. Now, the other part of it too is the Brits were trained to be extremely aggressive, but extremely disciplined. They just didn't run off and do their own thing. When they were ordered to attack in, in bayonet form, they started off walking until they got real close. So basically you have professional soldiers spread out in an amateur American army, backed up by some regulars, our Continentals. And here in the South, they didn't have the, the loyalists flock to the King's Banner as they originally had thought back in England. 
Um, that's the difference of fighting a war thousands of miles away, sort of like Afghanistan. To get permission to fire, they have to call back to Florida. So you have the command and control thousands of miles away where they really don't have a real idea of what is going on. Some loyalists flocked to it, but most of the loyalists um, had come down uh, from New Jersey. Some had come down even further from upstate New York, uh, Maryland, and uh, they were a major part of fighting in the Civil War that actually was here in South Carolina, in the South in general. So it was uh, brother against brother, tribalism, and uh, family feuds were, were worked out here locally. So it was a civil war here, just much like the civil war that was going to happen a generation later. There, there's so much miswritten history on the war in, in the South in general. And now with the uh, Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution Consortium, we've all been getting together in conjunction with the National Park Service, local sites. We're literally rewriting a lot of these battles because now in the computer age, we have access to so much more information. And my enjoyable uh, part of this is I get to punch holes in their balloons by sharing the British documents that I've spent 30 years collecting, looking at, and reading. And uh, I really enjoy that, and I enjoy learning so much more since I'm new to South Carolina. I have to play catch-up now. I have, I have to study Rutledge and the history of South Carolina. I have the books to read. Probably you know, next year when we talk, I can actually talk more intelligently about the American side, what the Americans were up to. But I knew what the British were up to. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and hopefully we can extend this conversation to a second podcast uh, where we talk a little more in depth about the British soldier and, and the accoutrements that he brought to the table and, and, uh, and some of the things that, some of the places he was from uh, here in South Carolina. You are right. This is a, just a, for historians, this is just a gem to be a part of here in South Carolina, the Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution that website, that consortium, uh, is 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 just great for those who were who were in involved in this this niche of the world. Uh, it's great to be a part of, and it's exciting, and you learn something new every day. Hopefully, our listeners will continue on our next podcast. You're very welcome.